Hello, and welcome to the 12th episode of Catch Up on Kids Mental Health. I'm Janet Morrison. In this episode, I'll be talking with Faye Mishnah about children and bullying. Faye is a professor and former dean of the Factor in Montage Faculty of Social Work at the University of Toronto, and she has over 20 years of practice experience in children's mental health. Her research focuses on bullying, cyberbullying, and technology use among youth, and she's the author of two books on bullying. Welcome, Faye, and thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Until not that long ago, bullying was considered a normal part of childhood experience. There are going to be schoolyard bullies, toughen up and get over it. What changed? Well, that's a really good question. I would say in the late 70s, that's when research began happening, although the public did not become totally aware of it. And uh, it began really in Norway in the um, in the early 80s when three teenage boys died by suicide after they had been bullied or extremely harassed. And Norway then started doing research and interventions. And Dan Allweiss was the researcher who really began that. And, and so then I would say other countries started doing research, including Canada and the United States. And then, of course, Columbine happened in Colorado. And that really brought it to the fore, to the public in a different kind of way. And after that, some of the states started implementing some legislature. And I would say since then, it's just really continued. And then the other uh, thing that happened, I would say, is the cyberbullying. Once the technology world took off, the difference between cyberbullying and traditional bullying is, of course, not only did witnesses watch it, but everybody took pictures and videos and it was put online. So then the whole world became aware of it. Not only did it become aware of it, but they could watch it over and over. So I would say it just been an ongoing kind of uh, occurrence where people have been more aware of it. Is there agreement among researchers as to what constitutes bullying? What are we talking about? Well, again, like everything else to do with bullying, it's complicated. There really isn't agreement in, about all the components, but there's some agreement. So for example, there is general agreement that it's considered a subset of aggression. Also, there's tends to be agreement that it's intentional. So it's different than aggression where somebody just hurts somebody. There's the intent to hurt. Now, that can also be difficult to, to prove, to find evidence for. Most definitions include, they now do, include the notion that bullying includes both physical and verbal aggression, and more recently, relational aggression. And that it's really um, a systematic, ongoing set of behaviors or actions by an individual or a group who are attempting to gain power prestige or goods. And that's really important that it can be, um, that it is intentional and it's about gaining power. Okay. Heretofore, we've only mentioned males. I'm. Can we talk about gender differences uh, with respect to bullying? We used to think that girls didn't bully in the classic sense of, you know, rubbing somebody's nose in the schoolyard. What do we know now about female aggression, female bullying? So again, and, and I would say in the 80s, we started to learn about female bullying. And, and it's true, we never used to think the girls bullied. And in fact, when girls acted in ways that we now understand are bullying, they would be described 
as it was their characteristics, as their personality rather than the behavior, which is bullying with an intent to gain power. So some researchers started to identify relational bullying. So again, when we go back to power, so when we think about typical schoolyard bullying where we have somebody beating somebody up, uh, then we know they're gaining power, physical strength power, sort of macho in that sense. So what we learned about relational bullying is that for girls, and again, it's it's not, we can't just polarize it, it's not always this way, but generally for girls, the way they will bully will be relational because the relationship is important and that's where they gain the power and that's where the threat can be. So it would be, um, and these are all kinds of, they can be in quotation, subtle kinds of bullying. So it'd be exclusion, rolling your eyes when somebody's talking, um, not inviting somebody, real malicious gossip. So it's, it's those kinds of bullying behaviors that are considered relational and that girls tend to be more likely to be involved in, although both boys and girls uh, bully in, in all kinds of ways. Tell me about who else is involved? We talk about the bully, male or female, but who is this for? Who is this? Who, where does the power come from? Who is the power grab directed towards? The audience. There is the bystanders are huge. There's a lot of research showing us that typically bullying and for sure cyberbullying occurs with witnesses. Um, now, it can be one witness, it can be a class, it can be uh, the whole school. It can be a group. And of course, in cyber, it could be uh, an unlimited amount. So typically, it happens with witnesses. And different roles have been identified. So in traditional bullying, there's the outsider who just stands there and does nothing. There's the reinforcer. That Those would be the people who stand there and, uh, and help either subtly or not so subtly, they're helping the person who's doing the bullying. There's the assistant, who's literally the perpetrator's assistant. And then there would be the defender who would try to help the person who's being bullied. And in cyberbullying, they're not identical, but similarly, and at first it was thought that cyberbullying didn't occur in front of witnesses, but it definitely does. So there's the the people who defend the person who's being victimized. They might report the cyberbullying. They might offer advice to victimized peers. And one of the things that we have found is that they've tended to, in cyberbullying, be more willing and able to respond privately rather than publicly. So the bystanders are incredibly important. And more and more work in schools and interventions have shown that to make a difference, we need to get the bystanders involved so they're not just involved in those roles. So what you're saying is it's a social event. It's not something that's done in secret. It's not something that somebody sort of is ashamed of and does very privately. How how does that work? Yes, it's definitely a social event. And because remember, the power comes from gaining popularity, gaining strength. And what what we found out about responses to kids who bully is they're often popular. That doesn't mean they're not liked. And in fact, in the, in the scheme of who is most popular, the least popular are the victimized kids. And, and then some of the, the ones the perpetrators will be. But it's definitely, definitely a social event. And that's why it's, and it, it's more than just a social event. When we think about it happens within a group, 
within a classroom, within a school, within a society. So it really happens in all those ways. And, and it's really understood to be a relationship issue. And uh, in fact, some researchers, Deb Pepper and uh, Wendy Craig in, uh, from Can- in Canada have said, bullying is a relationship problem that requires a relationship solution. So, I mean, what you're saying very clearly is there's either explicit or tacit approval by, uh, by the bystanders. Yes. Or the other thing that's really, it's a really important question is that, or some, many bystanders might not approve, but they might be scared to say anything, scared to do anything because they're scared they're going to be next, or they're just incredible peer pressure. And that's very important because kids who have been bullied particularly online, but even not online, when nobody says anything, they assume everybody does approve, whether it's tacitly or explicitly. And that's very important because it's not necessarily the case. Right. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about the victims now. What what, what is research telling us about the effect of bullying on victims? Well, research consistently tells us that the effects can be really detrimental. They affect affects their self-esteem, it affects their academics, their social. They might have started off really liking school, being social, and then they start to withdraw. It can affect them. Like many um, kinds of abusive situations, it affects their uh, physical headaches, stomach aches. They can also, uh, it really affects all aspects of their of their life, or it can. And the other important thing we, we know is if it's not addressed, often we say just ignore it, or we used to say that more. If it's not addressed, the effects can be longstanding. And of course, you know, like with many other kinds of issues that people deal with, it is possible to work it out and get through and be fine. And, and resilience is definitely an important factor. But it can have uh, detrimental short-term effects as well as long-term effects. You mean even into adulthood? Yes, even into adulthood. So when when children typically are bullied, do they tell? And who do they tell? And that's one of the most concerning things we know about bullying is that kids consistently often do not tell adults. They often tell their their friends, um, which again is important, but it could also be problematic because it puts friends in a funny position, but they often do not tell parents and teachers. Why not? Well, there's different reasons. I I guess, and when we talk about traditional bullying, the big reason is they think, well, there's a couple of reasons. One is they think it's not going to help anyways. And the other is that they think it's going to be a reverberation so that there's going, the bullying will get worse. So they're worried that it will get worse. And one of the things that happens is that often the advice to kids is tell an adult, tell a teacher, and we should, we, we promise it'll be better. But it won't necessarily be better. So that's a big reason they don't tell. In terms of cyberbullying, they often don't tell because they're scared that their devices will be taken away. And many of them will say things like, my parents are mean well, I know they mean well, they just want to protect me, but I can't live if they take it away. And again, similarly, they feel it's not going to help. Telling it's not going to help. So do they just suffer in silence? They suffer in silence or it's a secret among peers and friends. And uh, it's, it's a, that's one of the reasons it's such a serious problem, because we need to help them be able to tell. And when we just say, just tell your parents or tell your teachers, that's not enough. We have to give them evidence to show that if they tell, it can make a difference and it can be helpful. 
it's also better rather than say, tell a teacher um, or tell a parent, better to say, tell an adult, but if they're not helpful, keep telling until you find somebody who, who is helpful. The other thing that's important too, is we often talk about bullying as though it's one kind of behavior and uh, has similar effects for everybody and it definitely doesn't. So for example, if somebody is LGBTQ or trans, they're telling them to tell a teacher or even a parent it might not be safe, right? So they might know they're not safe, depending. So we really need to be careful. Well, maybe not careful, but we need to be aware of all the different factors and that we can't just promise kids that they need to tell and that will be helped. Faye, when you spoke about just now the, the idea that a, a transgendered child might not feel safe uh, discussing their bullying situation with a teacher or with a parent, are there situations where LGBTQ children or racialized children or transgendered children have specific issues uh, that are different than uh, other children? Yes, I think that's a really important question. It's called bias-based bullying. And bias-based bullying really is when there's a bias towards somebody because of a group they're a member of. So it can be racialized, LGBTQ, female, religion, nationality. I'm just thinking about when, um, I don't know if I should say this, but when Trump was president and was talking about building a wall, kids in the States were more likely to bully by saying, you know, we're going to build the wall, go back home. So definitely for being a member of a marginalized group. And one of the things that's important about that is they are often more likely to be bullied because bullying is often about being different in some way and where they can do or being targeted for that difference. And one sort of paradoxical issue about bullying is that on the one hand, it's excellent and really important that the world became aware of bullying as an issue, as a phenomenon, and it's you know recognized all over the world because then we can address it. On the other hand, there's criticism about using the term bullying because it it implies that it's all the same and that you can just address it and you know by being empathic or being kind or, or acting in certain ways, whereas really that's one aspect, but the other aspect is you need to learn about racism, uh, sexism, and those dominant norms and stereotypes need to be addressed as well, and again, in an age-appropriate way. So that's really critical. Well, I think in that case, and in the example that you gave, we're not talking about children picking up subtle cues about who's in and who's out. We're talking about explicit teaching of children that some groups are more important and more valuable than others. Absolutely. We're talking about learning discriminatory behavior. Absolutely. And learning it both explicitly and implicitly because it's in our society. So absolutely. And when that is not addressed, it can't be solved. And, and more and more, we're recognizing that those aspects need to be unpacked and addressed. So for parents and teachers to be telling children explicitly to be kind and inclusive, but adopting policies and behaving in ways that are completely antithetical to that is not really a very convincing or uh, helpful way to uh, approach the problem. Exactly. And then when we say we're approaching the problem of bullying, we're actually not. It looks like we are, but in fact, we're not. What is an effective intervention? What is a safe 
adult for for a child and what would be an effective and safe intervention? Well, again, there's many different. So, so one of the things again that we know is is what's important and would make something safe and effective is for the communication and the relationship to be open long before there's a problem, right? So kids know that they can talk and get help that they need. What is helpful is empathy. Adults need to respond with empathy and validation. And that's very important because sometimes, maybe more than sometimes, adults might be sort of trying to find out what happened. And so in that, they might not be empathizing. They might be saying, so what did you do? Did you do something to cause it? So those are the kinds of of responses that not only do they not help, but they further traumatize the child. Further victimize the child. Yeah, further victimize, sorry. They further victimize. In some ways, that's even worse than the original one because now they've gone for help. So, so that, that's problematic. So empathy is really important and not to be checking out whether they really had a legitimate reason, whether they were truly bullied or victimized, but to be empathic validation and then continue talking with them. In other words, the child would need to be a, a part of, or a party to whatever solution or intervention was decided upon. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that can be complicated because often children don't want uh, anybody to tell anybody. So right. it doesn't mean that that's realistic, but it's how that's done. Do the victims of bullying sometimes or ever retaliate? Do they ever assume the role of, of the bully? So again, it's quite, it's different for traditional and cyberbullying. And actually, generally, when we first used to talk about kids who are victim and kids who are victims and kids who bully, we used to really do it as separate them into those two categories. And now we realize more and more, it's more of a continuum. There really isn't a category. And it's one of the reasons we we stopped calling kids bullies or victims because they're more than that. Traditional bullying, it's generally harder to retaliate or respond in traditional bullying. There are kids who are both bullied and are victimized in traditional bullying. Typically, those are the kids who are most vulnerable and display the most problematic problems, issues, difficulties. Cyberbullying is different because in cyberbullying, it's much easier to exchange the roles, right? And it's much easier. People can get uh, victimized in different ways. So they might be victimized and then immediately respond back. So in cyberbullying, I would say the reverse happens a lot a lot more than in traditional bullying. So that same uh, finding isn't accurate. So in cyberbullying, if somebody is both bullied and perpetrates cyberbullying, it doesn't mean they're going to be more, uh, show more emotional problems. Is that because the internet and the being in your bedroom as opposed to being in the schoolyard somehow empowers victims to speak out or to retaliate or? Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, when you speak to Youth and adults, there's often an assumption they talk about cyberbullying as though it's anonymous. It's one of the first things they'll say, well, it's anonymous, you don't know who it is. So it's actually perceived in anonymity because, in fact, it's typically not anonymous. And it's similar to traditional bullying in the sense that it's that same relationship problem. It still happens within the peer group, often school peer group, 
And so it's not anonymous, but often there's a sense that there is anonymous. And sometimes kids have said you can hide behind the keyboard and you also cannot see the, the, you can't see what you're doing to the other person. So when you're calling somebody a name or excluding them, you see the impact of their face. You don't see it inside the bullying. Do you think that teachers and principals are aware of the extent to which bullying takes place and who are the victims of bullying? You know, I think that's a really interesting question. I think some research has shown that they're not aware of how much it goes on and they think kids talk to them and report bullying to them much more than they actually do report to them. In our research, what we found, though, in the interviews is the teachers were pretty um, even if they weren't aware of who was victimized, they were dealing with the behaviors throughout the day, right? And one of the problems is they have the curric- they have the curriculum to do, and they also need to figure out, is this bullying? Is it not bullying? Who's the victim? So they have a lot to figure out. So I think one of the issues is that, and research has shown, it works best if the whole system, the whole school climate is addressed. And in fact, that's the best way to to do that. If it's just one teacher having to deal with one classroom, it it becomes similar to one student dealing with another student. It's just, it's too difficult for one person to do that because it is a systems problem. Well, tell, tell me, what are some of the specific elements that would be involved in making the school a safe place that would be likely to discourage that kind of behavior? Well, so one of the one of the important elements would be starting before before there is actual bullying. So right from the time children are young, they would they would be learning pro-social behaviors and empathy. And that would also mean understanding and accepting differences. So uh, that that's the kind of pro-social teaching that's needed. Another thing that would make a difference is often because bullying does start young, um, often I'll give an example of kids in kindergarten um, might say something about comments that sounds, they might call kids, they might say something like, oh, that's so gay, use terms like that. So they're five and six. And one of the things that older teenagers and adults will say, when the teacher does nothing, right, the message is, it's okay. So that's the perfect time to really intervene and intervene not with not punitively, not shaming, but with education. Like saying, hey, just a minute, when you said that, do we, you know, like in a way that's um, appropriate to kids that age, but teaching them about it, teaching them about it that embraces them and doesn't make the child who said it feel ashamed or bad, but also gives a message to the other child and all the children is that you know, we don't think about kids in that way. We don't talk in that way. So that's really critical. And so by the time they get into grade three, four, five, if that hasn't happened, they've already got the message pretty deeply. Well, you know, I went to grade school 100 years ago, but when I went to grade school, and I remember this very, very clearly, there were one or two children in each of my classes that the teachers clearly did not like. And that we were almost given permission to exclude and be mean to those children. And 
I wonder sometimes, you know, when talking to teachers who are very exasperated by high needs children or children who act out, whether the children correctly or incorrectly get the message that these children are targets. I think that's a really important point. And that's, again, another reason why we have to deal with the whole system, right? Because absolutely. And, and again, how do we deal with that with teachers so that we don't shame, blame, and humiliate them, right? Right. But absolutely, I think that's critical. In my research where we interviewed teachers, one of the things that was really interesting, we interviewed kids, teachers, and adults and asked them for their definitions of bullying. And what was interesting is they all pretty much understood the definition that was similar. But with teachers and parents, but more so teachers, when a situation had occurred in their class that really fit their definition, if they had empathy for the kids who were the, the perpetrators and were also felt like the kid, the child who was a uh, victimized was frustrating and irritating, they would take the side, they had empathy for the kids who bullied the kid who was victimized. And so they didn't consider it bullying, even though it fit their definition, because they said, well, you can't blame them. He or she's driving them crazy. And that's very important because that's the message these kids get. These kids get the message, those, the kids who are irritating or have high needs, they get the message, well, no wonder I'm going to get bullied because I'm no good. And so that's why, again, it's really important to help them get feedback and change their behavior and for other kids to respond in a way that doesn't, uh, that isn't bullying. And to really clarify, just because somebody's irritating doesn't mean we have the right, nobody has the right to bully them. So those messages have to be given really early and then the modeling has to happen. But Again, that's much easier said than done. So that, that's why we really all the different aspects. I think we'll we'll kind of wind up with that because I think that we started by talking about the complexity of bullying and the systemic nature of it. And we're you're concluding by saying that as well, that if we're going to uh, have a more empathic and kinder environment, it takes everybody to be aware and to be sensitive to the social phenomenon that these children are coping with day in and day out from a very, very young age. Well, thank you very much for this. That's a lot of information for us to digest, and uh, I'm very grateful. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this episode. I think Professor Mishnah clearly outlined for us the very serious consequences of childhood bullying. Next time, I'm going to be discussing suicide and suicidal behavior among teens. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Janet Morrison.